Morena, Kia Tato, everybody. My name is Jade, as Tanil has already said, and I'm going to be slightly disruptive and just let you know right now I've got nothing in terms of a presentation to give you, so I would really like it if we could be super interactive today. Uh, I am a real-life disabled person, if you haven't already figured that out. Um, and my background is in youth development as far as disability and disability policy. Tanil wanted me to talk a little bit about my life, so I think that'd be cool just to do that first off. Um, when, I, when I think about growing up, particularly with Tanil, it's, it's really interesting because I went to a special school, right? So I didn't actually know for the longest time what disability was. Going to therapy was like a normal thing. Having a nurse pull you out of class was normal. Everybody around me had wheelchairs. So for the longest time, I, I didn't know anything about being different. I expected that my life was going to be the same as everybody else's. I mean, sure, I noticed that my brother's and my sister were walking around, but there was some sort of mental block that was there. I just didn't, I just didn't feel it. You, you, you know, I go around the country and I talk to families about their children being bullied and stuff like that. Never happened to me at all. So in, in mentioning this, I just want to say that I'm probably the worst example of a disabled person that you could have because I don't I don't actually come with all that baggage, which is to say, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about engagement uh, today, and unfortunately for Tanil, there's not really a scientific formula to it. You, you, might, you might have heard about enabling good lives, or manafaikaha, even if you just heard of it, that's, that's great. There are I think there are eight principles that we developed in my team around the expectations and the outcomes that disabled people and families want from you. And I don't know, are we going to be able to get a website on the screen or can we do that now? Because I want to talk about it a lot and it's not going to make sense. Uh, without you being able to see it. But it's really basic stuff, like uh, factoring in that for the longest time, disabled people and families haven't really had a say-so about anything to do with their supports. The Ministry of Health would engage an agency, the agency would tell the whanau how it's going to be, and that's pretty much how it is. What Cabinet is, has agreed is that that's not good enough. So every New Zealander should have the right to determine what their life looks like. I get asked a lot. I, I visit a lot of support providers. I, I work with a lot of community support workers as well. And they ask me, you, you know, it's, I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm nervous. I don't want to say the wrong thing or say anything out of step. What do I do? And Actually, Tanil and I were just talking about this before. The best thing anybody can do, bottom line, is just ask. 
uh, I don't think your head is ever going to be taken off for asking a question. And if it is, they're probably just having a bad day. Uh, I mean, that is the crux of everything I have to tell you, actually. And, and I just wanted to s sort of explore the fact that a lot of families are stressed. Uh, a lot of families are stressed. Uh, there's financial problems in the in the families usually. Uh, sometimes the families aren't even together, like the the husband or the partner's not there anymore. So there's a there's a lot of energy in these homes, and, and like it makes the situation even more tense uh, for people not to be asked. So if there was one sort of nugget of things that that I could leave with you guys here today. It's just ask. And so the question there might be, yeah, but how, how do you get to that place of asking? There's no real, there's no real easy answer on that. It's developing a rapport with the family, and sometimes that can be a rough road. But if you think about our lives and our context, you know, developing relationships generally is difficult. Uh, especially in today's modern age where most of it is done via technology and apparently swiping right. Not that I know anything about that, of course. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm really looking for a steer to deal about some of the things that I can help with because that's really the main thing, what I would say. So, uh, I'll throw one question at you then. Please. Please. Uh, I, I probably would advise against saying what's wrong with you because it, it kind of puts them in a deficit framing. If you're noticing there's an issue, uh, I think a better question might be, how can I help you or is there something I can help you with? Like, like really easy, just like, just like we wouldn't want to uh, offend a friend or so, someone we know in the neighborhood, you, you would just approach it in the same way. It's um, it's interesting for me because in my life I've always kind of tried to be the icebreaker. I try to be in a position to make people feel comfortable with me. If I think about my support context uh, before I moved to FFC actually, because I'm on that now, um, it was about me saying I want to be comfortable in my house and I sort of took up the responsibility of making it comfortable. For some people that are out there in your communities, that's not always going to be possible. Uh, there might be communication or behavior, behavioral issues. So it's really about meeting them where they are. And yeah, I don't have an easy answer for that. I have a question. Please. Mm -hmm. Especially my little one, she's only seven years old. I've got a seven-year-old. We see someone and we'll she's six. What do you say to children? Like, I look up and I'm still stop staring. Like, what can I say to her? She's like, but why? But why? I'm like, don't stare. Okay, so... Because we all get here all the time, people just staring at you. So this is going to be radical. 
Uh, telling your daughter not to stare is probably the worst thing you could possibly say. I would actually say, what do you want to know and should we go ask? Because I think e even if the person is non-verbal or you know not able to partake, I think the family would really appreciate that you're approaching them trying to bridge the gap, you know, just by saying, my daughter was curious about the wheels or what, what's going on, can we, can we have a conversation? Actually, that's a powerful thing. So then that child goes away knowing what's up with that individual and they're comfortable around them. Another thing that I was going to touch on today, and I'm sorry if this is slightly obvious to you guys, but the concept of social isolation for disabled people. I'm really fortunate in my life with the work that I do and the resources that I have that, that I can get around and do just about anything. I've only just started driving at 34, so that's kind of random, but I always had the opportunity to use taxis and uh, Uber as well, it was never a barrier. But for some people out there, um, the resource just isn't there or they just don't have any friends or they were shipped directly off to a sheltered workshop or day program and they just never made connections like that. So speaking to that, you know, moments like the ones you talk about, just reaching out and saying, hey, can we have a conversation with you? Can we know a little bit more about your story? would be amazing, I think. Do you want to share more about your story, Jake? So, yeah, I didn't actually say anything about it. Sorry, it's a habit of mine. <laughs> um, so I was born with cerebral palsy. Uh, we don't know all the details because it was 1984 and the medical records weren't as good as they are today. But long story short, lack of oxygen at birth. Um, and from what? I understand my mom didn't really find out there was anything wrong until I was about three years old. I just wasn't hitting the developmental milestones. Um, I wasn't sitting up. I wasn't feeding myself. I was drooling more than I should have been. And um, if I think back to what my mom sort of talks about, and she does. She does charge me a surcharge for talking about her whenever I do these things. Uh, but <laughs> but um, you know, she said the doctors basically told her to prepare for the worst, that I wasn't going to be talking or walking. What I'm really excited about for your organization is for the fact that you do work in communities. Um, there's still very much a residential care context in New Zealand. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, enabling Good Lives doesn't speak to that at all. And yeah, just thank you for what you do out there. I know it's tough, um, but it's necessary to keep our friends and whanau connected. Yeah, go. Um, so Jade is the oldest of four. Uh, is it, how many is there? Nine. Nine, right, thank you. Now there is, yeah. Nine of them, right. When we grew up, there were four of them, yeah. three of us, and I was the oldest, so Jade and I were older, the oldest yep. of our family.
Mr. Dr- Dongo or Drongo? <laughs> yeah. But we would pile in together, so my auntie and uncle. No, a whole bunch. Man. Yeah, I'm so telling you the truth, yeah. yeah. So Stephen Pitts and our, our weekends <laughs> were very normal that we would, seven kids pile in, my auntie, my uncle, Jake's um, father's Rarotongan, so we would pile into their van, there's these guys, and then the three little blonde, well I wasn't blonde, but my sisters are blonde and blue eyed, and we'd be out, uh, out for the whole day on our weekend trips. We would go to the beach, we would go to parks, we would go everywhere normal, and I think as much as everybody, we as children never ever noticed that people would be looking, my auntie would talk a lot that people weren't looking at Jade, people were looking at her like, where'd you get these three little white kids from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going on here and trying to establish if we were out on a community program or what was going on. Yeah, and I, to add to that, you know, credit to my mum because I, I think just as I said, you know, I had full expectation for myself that I was going to do normal things. I, I think that is a testament to what my parents expected as well. Now, they're not perfect people. I always like to preface this because my mum can come ac- across sounding like an angel when I'm normally done with these talks. She's not, and neither am I. But, but with that being said, you, you know, full credit to them too for whatever they decided to do around just not acknowledging my impairment at all and allowing me the space to just be the person that I was going to be. Now on that, just to finish up the sort of story about my life, I wasn't always like super confident like this or even able to speak in front of people. For a lot of my high school career, you know, that's when I sort of noticed things were different and there were things like special units, and, and then it all became really real. So, you, you know, for my early teenage years, I, I really did fall into myself. And there were a lot of problems going on at home anyway. My parents split and um, it was a really, really dark time for me. So when, when the end of school uh, came about, they didn't actually have transition like they do now. Transition's like a really normal thing to be talking about and there's quite a few agencies around that do it. Uh, Back when I was at school they were trialling with the ministry what uh, transition even was. So so that's a long way of saying I didn't have a whole lot of support uh, to think about my future and what I was going to do. I got linked up with a youth organisation called FAB Uh, Hopefully you've heard of them, maybe you haven't, Uh, but the premise for what they do is uh, social integration for disabled young people. Uh, They do focus primarily on the physical disability, but they can cater to a small number of uh, cognitively affected people. Um, So I started going along there. I didn't really feel it and the main reason I didn't feel it was because it was the first time again that I was surrounded by disabled people. 
being at a mainstream high school, you, you know, if you were mainstreamed, like, like it's kind of ingrained in you to sort of never hang out at the unit. You're not going to be cool if you're ever over there at the unit. So, so going to fab, I'm just being really honest. It's the only way I can do things. Being at fab, surrounded by other disabled people, I was just like, this is not right. No, like, there's no way at all this is going to work. But what actually happened for me was I found common ground with a lot of these guys. We were going through all the same things, all the pressures of being young, disabled, having feelings about boys, girls, that kind of thing. We found common ground. And that's when I realized community is really important. Going back to the social isolation thing that I talked about earlier. So I decided to stick around at FAB and I, you know, worked in youth work for a while and did that and ran youth groups and that sort of thing. I started to get invited to speak at different conferences. I thought that was weird because I was just a kid with an opinion, but apparently that was all right. Um, and over time, I just developed uh, relationships with the Ministry of Health, which is how I got into policy. I did get a scholarship to go to AUT, but I'll just say there's not much to say there because I dropped out three times. Um, and <laughs> it was a bachelor in um, information systems, and I'm really good at it. But it was just the lectures were really boring and I'm more of a practical person. So I started my own web design company uh, back when I was about uh, 24. Ran that for a while and that was cool. We were really successful because of the relationships I was already developing with the Ministry of Health. We managed to get ministry contracts, so that was fun. And that's sort of the really rapid version of where I'm at. Um, getting, getting on to the National Leadership Group, that was really interesting because most of the people appointed to that group to oversee EGL were appointed by agencies. Uh, Minister Turia at the time asked her advisors to find a young person that wasn't gonna say what everybody else was saying. And the rest was history. So, um, Jade, what things do you, and excuse my figure of speech, but what things do you struggle with in everyday life? Oh yeah, I was supposed to cover that. I always forget about what I struggle with. Um, uh, honestly, though, um, I do have supports in my home environment, so I do need a bit of personal care support. So help with dressing is actually a thing. You know, Hannah got me dressed just before putting my jacket on and stuff like that. Um, I, I need help with the household management. Um, I need help with cleaning. Uh, I need help with time management, but that's not really what home care does. <laughs> um, um, and, and just, I, I, I think, I, I think I've got the opposite problem for myself 
because I have been so lucky and, and so fortunate in what I'm able to do. I, I think I suffer from social isolation from the opposite end where, uh, where I'm so busy I forget to do that. But in saying that, my daughter is extremely grounding for that. So I get to have her on the weekends and it's sort of like my, my schedule, I've got to be back in Auckland by Friday afternoon so I can pick her up from school. You know, I only have her for the night and a bit of the next day, but uh, so grounding, so important for me, otherwise I'd be constantly working. Um, you know, I see my mum, but I don't really see her. You know, she does the FFC bit for me, but I don't really see her. So I used to live in the Quest on Queen Hotel at the bottom of Queen Street and now I live in a sort of penthouse studio apartment in Anzac. <laughs> penthouse style, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of plain looking though. Um, on Anzac Avenue in the city, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've actually got some evidence of that here today. So um, uh, public transport is a, is a big issue, and I know that people you support uh, would definitely face that as well. Y you know, where we apparently have accessible buses uh, these days, but it's not so accessible if the bus driver doesn't want to deploy the ramp for you because he can't be bothered. No. So, so remembering that I've got a little bit of resilience and I can speak for myself. Um, think of those that don't or can't. Uh, I can't imagine what their days are like. We had a bus drive off on us the other day, didn't we? Just the other day, we had a I pulled up at the door. His door was still open. I wasn't racing to get on. His door was still open. He looked at me, closed the door, drove off. Yep. And then when things like that happen and it's really late, you actually It's funny you should say that because I didn't want my CV to sound like movie credits when I first started, but I'm actually on the Auckland City Disability Advisory Panel. So I have a lot to do with AT directly, and yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not big fans of seeing me when I come into the meeting room. Yeah. They, they know they're gonna have a tough day, but um, AT definitely do shrug their shoulders a bit. They say, they say look, you guys are only 25% of the population, which means we've got a whole lot of other people to think about. Uh, I just remind them of the UN convention a little bit, I, I remind them of, you know, EGL, as I've been going on about quite a bit today. Um, it's a work in progress, and, you know, I've served two terms with the, with the council on that panel uh, so far. I am proud for what we've been able to achieve, but undoubtedly, I, I do honestly feel like we should have done more by now. So back to your people that you support. I, 
I personally want to apologize for that. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily be about disability because like, there's only so much you can go around about that. And I'm disabled, but not really. We've kind of covered that already. Sorry, I'm always asking questions. Go on. Is your website um, enabling a good life? What is, that, what is it actually about? Is it talking about website or is it on oh, no. what, as a community we can do for people that are disabled? No, so it talks about the policy that's been agreed to by Cabinet. So what we're trying to do is transform the entire disability support system. We're trying to make it easier uh, for families to use supports in the ways that they want to. And we're also trying to make it easier for organizations like yours to be able to respond to that. Because I know anecdotally that contracts are quite rigid. You're, you're told what to do and how to do it. So if you look at that website, uh, you'll be able to see exactly what we're doing. It's a, it's a fundamental paradigm shift into transferring the control over supports and resource uh, to the person and their families and enabling you guys to respond in more creative and responsive ways. So yeah, the the I built the website, but it's not a blog or anything. It's actually really serious. Yeah. Up here, um, in, we remind me the town. I keep getting it mixed up with somewhere else. For system transformation. Uh, Palmerston North. In Palmerston North. So up here, um, participate in some of the system transformation stuff that's going on, and the system transformation project. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is in Palmerston North, and there's some trials going on, and it's chosen to be run there purely for the likelihood and the environment of the city being a bit more flat um, and not less of the situations like we have here, right? That's a little bit wrong. So why, why, we, why we actually chose the Palmerston North is because it's the only region that I'm aware of anyway that has not had intervention by the Ministry of Health um, in, in terms of trials. So, so there was no new model trial, there was no EGL trial, that there was no... Um, EIF. Yeah, there was no EIF or anything like that in Palmerston North. So it was actually neutral policy ground for us to, to have sort of, sort of a standardised test. What Tanil says though about the place being flat, I would agree with that. And, and when are we next there? Couple of weeks? Couple of weeks time. So um, it's not a trial, it's actually a prototype. Um, mm. And it is not just Palmerston North, it's the mid-central. So Palmerston North live in um, and a few wider places. But Good um, point, thank you. The team's actually based in Palmerston North. Um, yeah. The Manasai Kaha team. So you might have heard of things, I don't, I don't know for sure. We're trying to spam you guys probably every other day about Manafaikaha. So, um, 
But you might have heard about things going on in uh, Waikato and Christchurch as well. So there we had EGL trials that were looking at the features of what we were trying to roll the new system out with. Uh, one of the ones, I won't go into it because I know Tanil doesn't want this to be an EGL lecture, but one of the key differences of the uh, system will be the deployment of what we call connectors or two horno. Hopefully you've at least heard of that once, maybe. Nobody? That's, that's not great, but these people are going to be deployed as independent allies uh, to the disabled person and family to help them think about what a good life means. Because uh, we actually need to go right back to basics uh, with some of these families because they've been caught up in just keeping their family member safe and well. They don't really think about the bigger picture of what are they going to do when I get too old to look after them. Please. So Manafai Kaha currently is the prototype and the new way of, will be the new way of working, but that's actually off based off the EGL um, vision and principles. So there's mm. eight principles. I think there are eight or nine, not sure. <laughs> um, and they're just a good way of working now, and if your organisation is working with an, an EGL mindset now, um, then in the new way of working, you're going to be a lot more capable of it, being able to work with and, and for people because the biggest thing with systems transformation is the individuals are the customers. You've got to think about the contract is the customer, so you've got to make the customer happy and think about how can you make it money enhancing for them. Oh, yeah, so, so the big thing that I sort of wanted to mention, and I'm being a bit of a rebel, because I'm not really supposed to be talking about this, but I've sort of spread it everywhere by now. But the, the, the concept of NASC is actually going away. So the, the new system will have a small funding unit that will have a business unit, but the idea is instead of people having an assessment based on their impairment or disability, uh, families and the individual will have an opportunity to make a proposal, not just based on support, uh, but what they want to achieve in their lives. So we don't just take into account, you know, how many times do you want to shower in the week? We actually want to be much more aspirational with people and families and provide supports that way. What we are realizing also is that disabled people and families are underutilizing uh, natural supports. They're not included in their communities. So another function that the two Horno will have is to bridge those gaps, uh, create connections and support people and families to feel a lot more welcome. So there are good things coming and what I, what I like about what Tanil and her team are trying to do is uh, I think they've realized this to a certain extent that good things are coming and they're trying to get you in a good place. Uh, you, you know, I think Tanil realized 
the star power she has in the room here today, but I'm not sure. And, and this is a fantastic opportunity um, to have the conversation. Oh, do we? <laughs> in presence, so ten more, ten more minutes. Any other questions? Anything else you want to know? Anything that jumps out at you that you think actually, I really want to know how I could personally make a difference or change the way that I do, <coughs> or like Karen's example, how could I best ask something? So, uh, Different roles is different. She was saying that. Yeah, so right now in Palmerston North, we're try trialling a business unit and there's actually only four people in there. So we're trying to downscale the red tape and we're trying to reframe it so that rather than people going around and being assessed based on their disability or impairment, families make proposals based on what they want to achieve going forward. So they're not limited to just a conversation about how many showers they're going to have or how many meals they're going to get cooked for them. It's sort of like, uh, what do you want to achieve? How do you want to contribute? And how can the government uh, give back to you in, in respect to that? Because disability policy has unfortunately been a dog's breakfast for as long as I've been alive. So myself and my team are trying to change that. So it's a fundamental shift of rather than saying, please, can I have? It's more like, this is what I want. And like I said earlier, on the flip side, we're trying to enable you guys so your contract actually says that you're allowed to respond to my aspirations, that you're not limited to just thinking about my my showers, my toileting, my meals. We, we gotta get beyond that. We gotta get people connected and contributing to their communities because regardless of a person's impairment, everyone has a contribution to make. That, that was even a paradigm that was difficult for me to get my head around and what I realized was that I, I was internally classifying people, I was you know, impressing my own bias on them about what they could achieve. This whole policy wants to break that right down completely. Jay, what do you feel about how people just assume because you've got a disability that you also have an intellectual disability? Clearly you don't. Ah, uh, still you might do. You don't. <laughs> Yeah, it happens a lot. It's a real thing. So uh, for me, you know, going to airports, trying to check in, uh, in New Zealand won't talk to me. They'll, they'll talk to Hannah. Yeah, I know that yeah. my cousin Hannah a couple of years ago, and she's um, just got, she's got kidneys. And I, she was in a wheelchair, and she's like, you'll go to a restaurant, and they'll ask me what she wants. And I'm like, she can talk. Yeah. So, so I can tell a funny story about this, Jay. Go ahead. So, um, when Jay, oh, I don't know how old we would have been, maybe nine or ten. Where was I living? Rockville. 
Okay, yeah. So maybe nine or ten. So we Jade lived in one house, and across the road or just up the street was another person that had cerebral palsy as well. Um, Scott, remember? Mm, and, um, okay, yep. And so Scott had not just physical disability but intellectual impairment, and we used to go to um, different activities. And he had a cousin as well that would come along. So there would be Jade and myself and Scott and his cousin. I can't remember what they did. Uh, I, I remember her, actually. And Trisha. Oh, that's right. And yeah. So we would go out and do things. So some of the things we did was that we went to Scouts. So we would go to be helping get Jade and um, Scott into places or whatever the situation might be. Um, but because Scott couldn't, he was non-verbal, in terms of couldn't speak words and had intellectual disability, we'd often all be lumped in the same category, exactly like what you're saying. And he was very vocal with sounds. So um, uh -huh. do you remember this? <laughs> so often we would go places, and if we were in that situation where prejudice was occurring, then Dave would play up and start <laughs> acting on it too. So he could be included, right? That we could just be like, well, okay, we're all out. Uh -huh. <laughs> Yeah. So that did happen a lot, didn't it? Really. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you, you know, when when I when I walk into a room, you, you know, when I when I pull up at Parliament and try to check in with my appointment with the minister, um, yeah, you know, people are looking around like, who's really supposed to be here? It's not. It's not really you. You know that 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 kind of thing occurs to this day. I I, I don't know what my uh, response to that is other than you know I just keep going like I I just I just want to make things better for people that is my driver that I'm I'm fortunate that I have a voice I'm fortunate uh, that I have the ability to go out and about as I've already said uh, but with that I, I feel a tremendous burden of you, you know paving a way for for others that have more difficulty with that and from the age of 19, I've dedicated my life to uh, disability policy ever since. Can I just add to that if it's right? Mm. Um, so the big thing for Healthcare New Zealand, I see that um, with the work that you do, if you're actually able to be there for your clients, you know, on time, communicating, just building rapport with the clients, um, supporting them with home care, supporting them with personal care, that is what actually is one less stress for a disabled person to live through each day and then through through it we can actually go through and live our lives. So um, one thing I'll just let you guys know if you don't know, I've got an invisible disability. Um, I have a long-term health condition, epilepsy and a rare disease of mitochondrial disease where I actually lost my vision when I was 18. Um, so that's really new, but I think it's, it's all about communicating. And I think your question about, um, is it all right to ask? I think the big thing is flipping the question, not what's wrong with you, is how can we help? I used to get so frustrated when I didn't have a diagnosis, when I was just constantly in hospitals, I was asked the same question by doctors every single day, what's wrong with you? They didn't read their files and I had to explain my health condition when they're the doctor. So what can they do? 
you can actually ask, how can we help? Just how can we make your life better? What can we do? Um, just being a simple support. Yeah. Talking, because we are people, so. Mm. Hannah, do you want to talk a little bit around how the impact of having vision and then all of a sudden that being gone, because it was sudden really, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, so... How, how did that affect you? What, what happened? So to let you know, so um, for me, I did, it is genetic and my mum was adopted, so I had no idea that this could even be a factor. And then it was... Um, at 12, I started having seizures, and I had no idea why. And doctors from the age of 12 just kept on telling me, oh, we don't know why you're having seizures, no medication was working, it's a long-term health condition, so it means no support. From there, I finally was in and out of hospital for two years, a lot. And then I thought, went home, and I was sleeping some days for 22 hours a day, just really bad chronic fatigue. And then I thought it was a side effect of one of my medications because I had had a side effect before. Um, I woke up and I thought, oh, I don't want to I don't want to interrupt my mum and my dad. We've just been to hospital. I had my nurse specialist on the phone and I called her and she didn't want to alarm me but um, said, come in now. And it was only really when we were at the hospital I realised I really can't see and this is an epilepsy and then I was lucky to have a doctor who investigated further but it was going to be my life you know I had full vision and I was like well what do I do I could write I could type now what do I do now technology is amazing with or my, my phone talks to me, my laptop talks to me, um, and I'm so lucky to have an amazing support of Jade, and we work together, which is amazing. So that's the thing about having an invisible disability. They talk to me, and they'll show me things at the airport, say, but I, I'm thinking to myself, I can't read what this ticket says at all, just because I'm not carrying a white cane, because I'm with Jade, I, <laughs> I hold on to his handles. And, and why, why should I? Should I, you know? And it's like, well, Jade can actually read, and he's very intelligent. And you've got wheels. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like a talking guide dog at this point. <laughs> I, I just agree. So, yeah. We work together, and I think the big thing is, yes, some of your clients may be angry, because I know I was angry at my doctor, but it's flipping that, what's wrong with you? It's, how can we help? How is your day going? How are you? And actually, a big thing that the Māori culture and Pacifica culture is all about, is about slowly building that relationship that rapport with individuals and communicating but it was really hard suddenly having vision and suddenly not and I just I was lost for a while not knowing what I was going to do and no way did I think that I'd be able to be doing the work you know I thought I have chronic fatigue 
and had seizures every day and I had no idea what I was going to do for my life and now that I can see but I'm actually doing so much you know I'm doing accounting doing the accounting I'm doing emails everything that you think needs vision um, but there's ways and means of doing things and it's all about the little things that support me, I recognise that it's not a barrier, it's actually me, and that's who I am and it makes me who I am. It's also kind of helpful that I don't mind uh, dumping work and delegating things to Hannah. Uh, <laughs> I'm very, very okay with that. So over time we're, we've both grown as, as people working together. So it was pretty interesting the way we actually started working together. It was I was on a youth leadership um, a leadership course because I'd just been um, nominated for an attitude award, and then I had started working at the youth organisation Fab, and I just basically met Jade one day and I said, "I like what you're doing," and he said, "Okay, you know, come work with me one day." And then from then I just said, "Okay, I'm not going now. Thanks." She never left, and she moved into my house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know. Um, no, it's, it's been fun, guys. I don't know if we're over time to Neil, but yeah, it's been really great. And you know, keep keep doing what you're doing. And and I guess the last sort of message I wanted wanted to leave was I I know. I know there's a lot of policy and regulations around boundaries and how you're supposed to act with, with a disabled person and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong, professional boundaries are important, but also consider that for some people, um, the support workers and the people like you that, that are going out there are sometimes the only people that disabled people see so I always keep that in the back of my mind. You, you know, where do you draw that line when you might actually be their only friend during the week? So if you're just going into their home to just talk about, you know, what's wrong with you, you mm. know, actually you're the only person that I've seen all week. Um, yeah, wouldn't it be nice just to have a bit of a conversation and actually you'll find people can open up a lot more. Last thing, I just want to thank you for having me. It was a really good idea of Tennille's. I kind of left it hanging with the emails. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really good on emails, but we got it done eventually, and it's been really fun. Thank you very much. <laughs>